Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Welcome to 2021, everyone. It's January the 3rd, Sunday, January the 3rd. New year, new show, Keen on Sunday, the first show in which I bring together a number of different writers who have uh, focusing on, on, on similar themes to discuss their books and issues. And in my mind, at least, uh, as a green card holder in the United States, the big story of 2021 will be the United States. Who knows what's going to happen? Um, at the end of last year, 2020, The Economist uh, had a section, uh, an article about the country of the year. And of course, America was anything but country of the year. Uh, and the fate of America in, 21, uh, in 2021, I think, is particularly important and fascinating, not only to Americans, but to the rest of the world. So what I did for our first show, I invited on four of America's leading authors, all of whom have written really interesting and important books about America. Uh, Tom Zollner, The National Road, Kerry Arsenault, uh, Milltown, Carl Hoffman, Liar's Circus, and Dale Maharidge, uh, Fucked at Birth. Uh, I, I thought what we might do to begin would be to ask each of you um, to talk briefly about your books uh, and, and what you were trying to do. Um, maybe we will start um, with, uh, with you, Kerry. Um, talk a little bit about your book, what you were trying to do with Milltown. Yeah, so uh, the basic, I grew up in a rural working class town of Mexico, Maine on the Androscoggin River, where for 100 years, our community orbited around a paper mill. Um, it provided jobs for most people, and th including three generations of my own family. And I had a happy childhood. But years after I moved away, I realized the price I paid for that childhood and, and the price we all paid, really, people that lived there, because the mill, while providing community, job stability also contributed to the destruction of our environment and our lives. But it also, um, Milltown also examines and explains the modern world and its contemporary conundrums, the rise and collapse of the working class and the American dream, um, the hazards of nostalgia and memory, the ambiguous nature of toxics and disease, and how the past affects our present day lives. And at the center of the narrative, I think, is the story of family and identity, American identity, like what we're talking about today. Um, and it's a bit of a, a mashup, I'd say, of memoir, investigative journalism, cultural criticism, with the central question, who, are, who or what are we willing to sacrifice for our own survival? Um, Carl Hoffman has also written a wonderful book um, about America, similar themes in some ways, although very much focusing on Donald Trump. Carl, what is Liar's Circus about? Well, a year ago in the fall of 2019, I decided I'd been thinking a lot about Donald Trump and Trumpism, and I'm a native Washingtonian, D.C., Washington, D.C., the capital. 
And, uh, you know, it, it occurred to me that I didn't, in the four years that Trump had been president, I mean, I didn't know any Trump, any Trump supporters, really. I had a few uh, acquaintances on Facebook, but, you know, in my everyday life, I didn't, not bars, restaurants, the gym, coffee houses, you know, buses, Metro, I didn't encounter any, any Trump supporters. And I started thinking about that and how I wanted to kind of investigate what Trump Trumpism was and and if there was a place I wanted to go there and I started thinking more about that and I decided that the place was his rallies and that um, you know if Trumpism was a place that was the that was in the arenas and so I spent the fall of 2019 going across America from rally to rally. Um, and what I did was not just, you know, the rally itself, he would speak mm -hmm. 90 minutes or so, but, you know, people lined up days ahead. And so that's what I started doing is really spending, I spent almost 200 hours in parking, arena parking lots for the most part, hanging out with the biggest, the most super fan, Trump super fans. You know, I was number six in line in Tupelo, Mississippi, and I was in the top 10 of the line for a bunch of rallies. And I traveled with the with these people and dined with them and ate with them and, and lived with them. And that's what Liar Circus is all about. Another wonderful read. Uh, I think all your books are actually, and I'm not just saying it because you're on the show. They're all excellent. Well, that's because you're on the show. It's because all your books are really good. Um, Dale Maharaj, I actually interviewed you on the main uh, Lit Hub show last week. Uh, your book, I'm allowed to say this because this is its title, Fucked at Birth. What's your book about, Dale? Uh, again, a, a travel book in many ways in both time and space about America. Yeah, the title's not gratuitous. I was out in the desert early in the pandemic getting uh, getting some R&R, I guess, and I found an abandoned gas station with a friend. And inside was that graffito, fucked at birth. And it's pretty much summed up all the 40 years I've been doing this. I started writing about uh, poverty and working class people in 1980. Uh, I'm from uh, uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, uh, my father was a steel worker. My mother was a bus driver. I have a blue collar background uh, as well. And, um, and when the, uh, my first book was about the decline of the steel industry and people set on the road looking for work back in 1985, it was called Journey to Nowhere. So what I did in Fucked at Birth was I went back to a lot of the places I've reported on over the past 40 years. Uh, uh, I was in the Navajo Nation, uh, the homeless camps of Sacramento, uh, the Midwest. I lived in Denison, Iowa for a book for a year. Uh, and of course, Youngstown, which is my uh, kind of my bellwether city. Uh, uh, it's a terribly destroyed steel town. Uh, Bruce Springsteen sang about it uh, in his song Youngstown, which was based on my book. Uh, if you listen to Bruce Springsteen's song Youngstown, you, you pretty much know my book. You don't need to read it. Actually, it was my first book. and I'm, uh, I'm a proud of the reporting, not of the writing. I was a very young man when I wrote that. But that's a pretty much, and, and I, it's my, uh, my thesis is uh, I asked the question, are 20s, uh, the 30s. In other words, I think the, 19, the 2020s are going to be in some many ways like the 1930s uh, were in America. Uh, we, the threat of fascism has not gone away. Economic dislocation. You know, if you're uh, a white collar worker on the coasts, you're not doing quite all right. But for the middle of the country and a lot of people who are on the edges who, who are surface workers, they're going to bear the brunt of this Great Depression of the 2020s. 
finally, last but not least, um, Tom Zollner's book, um, The National Road, is... I, I, I don't take this personally, Tom, but I think of all the books, yours is ironically the most cheerful, although I, I'm sure you don't think of the book in any cheerful term. It was, it's, it's the least dark of the books. Is that fair? I'm happy to take that compliment. And uh, I'll tell you that um, there have been multiple nonfiction attempts to capture the United States in a single volume, and uh, they have all failed. You know, uh, even Tocqueville's Democracy in America, which is regarded as sort of the ur-text of uh, American Rosetta Stones, doesn't come close to capturing um, the incredible uh, variety uh, of the country. Um, at, at any given minute, there are 350 million individual stories playing out. So this is my own sort of poor attempt at uh, that genre. Uh, travels with Charlie, uh, Blue Highways, uh, our towns inside USA. Uh, this is an essay collection, and uh, there are only 14 essays in here uh, that attempt to draw a sense of American character through the geography, through the awareness of who we are, and how that both uh, determines a lot about our individual characters, but at the same time, paradoxically, how uh, Americans are freed from geography. As you said, Tom, uh, all your books are about America. They're all travels of one kind, travels about growing up, travels, literal travels, on the road, driving, walking, hiking. Uh, and as you also said, Tom, no one has ever captured America. Why, and, and anyone please jump in here, why is America such a hard country to write about? <laughs> Silence. I, I'll say, I'll Silence say for, for writers. It's quite an achievement. I'll say something. The, the, I think that the geography, uh, it, part of what my book talks about too is geography. And I think that our landscapes define us, but we also define it. And if you look at the geography of America, it's so diverse that how to give it one identity is just like saying it's all one geography. Yeah, I mean, it's travel around. Sorry, it's, I mean, it's, you know, it, it's no surprise to say that it's big. And that means it's challenging. I mean, if you want to really cover the whole country, you want to drive it around, it's a huge effort of time. And, and you know, you don't want to be, I think all of us are doing the kinds of books that are, that are trying to be in depth and that are not just parachuting in a place. And, you know, that means it's, you know, it's just a huge commitment of time. I mean, to, to travel around, to drive is, you know, hours and hours and hours from one place to another and to spend the time in a commute, one local community, let alone dozens that are representative of East Coast, West Coast, North, South, Midwest. I mean, it's just, it's, it's daunting. The tragedy of that, Carl, though, is in so making those journeys, and this is what I found, and this is what is the source of endless beguilement and frustration for me, is um, I wind up zipping through places like Mexico, Maine, you know, without considering you know, what, what, what's here? Who are these people? What have they suffered? What makes them who they are? You know, it's books like Carrie's that, you know, make that uh, deep excavation that uh, any single volume about the United States is totally unable to do just because you sacrifice, you know, uh, depth for breadth. Yeah. Well, I also, you know, I mean, this is my fifth book and it's the first book that has even touched upon the United States. And I think in a lot of ways it's easier, or at least for me, 
you know, it's sometimes easier. I mean, I lived, I did a book about um, a, a very remote place in New Guinea and um, a bunch of, you know, indigenous people in Borneo. And in a way, those super foreign places as an American are easier to, to approach or to feel like it's easier to approach them with a fresh eye and, and a and a sense of surprise and wonder than it is to plunge into your own country. That's, uh, that's what I, I was really struck with in, in your book, uh, Carl, is you approached America in an almost anthropological way. You were coming in as an outsider, having written about and observed many quote unquote primitive tribes in, in, in Borneo. Suddenly you were discovering that your own place, and this is a classic trope, was no different from what you've been spending your career writing about. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, you know, we should never use, <laughs> use the word primitive. You know, these are really I did say quote unquote. people. Well, no, but it's an important thing to, to make sure we say, because then when you talk about America, you know, I mean, there's nothing, you know, primitive about Americans. It's just difficult. It's difficult to see, I think, sometimes. It's difficult to to write about and to look at a place as if you're seeing it for the first time when it's a place that you have grown up with. I think there's room, I think there's room for both uh, in all of our books. And I've only read a little bit of everybody's to be fair, but I think there's a place in that we can do both of those perspectives. Once we leave a place, you, you have that perspective of being outside. And then once you get to those places, you have the inside and so much, so much more, um, connected than somebody from outside our country writing those books. I don't know. What do you think? I, I think that perspective is important to be both insider and outsider to a place. Well, I think we're all outsiders if we're doing this kind of work. I mean, maybe I'm speaking, I'm projecting myself onto you guys, but uh, I, I grew up <laughs> blue collar and uh, and I, I've always been sort of the, uh, the hound dog in the house of poodles uh, my whole life. I you know, I taught at Stanford, I teach at, at, at Columbia University, and yet I don't feel I'm of those places. But when I go back to Cleveland, I'm not of it. So I, I, I approach my work as an outsider. Uh, in a way, America is, is like a foreign country to me because of that. I think it makes it good. And even when you deep dive, I spent three years in Alabama on my book uh, and their children after them about the sharecroppers that James A. Jean Walker Evans wrote about. And I, I really got to know the people really well. But as I, as I note uh, in several of my, my books, you never really get to know anybody. You, I, mean, I think you have to admit that. It's like you can be married to somebody for 20 years and not know them. Something happens and you discover this stranger I'm living with. So um, as long as like, you approach the work with that uh, honesty, and uh, I think it, it, you, can, you can get some understanding of people. But um, uh, uh, so I, I've kind of dipped in and, I, and some of my books are more are more episodic. I, I like to say that I, I drive for a living and I occasionally stop and interview people. Uh, let me just jump in with this, this issue of geography because Tom particularly, I think, dealt with it brilliantly in his book. One of the things that struck me about all four of you is that you don't really have a location. I mean, you're, you're somewhere, but a couple of you seem to live on the West Coast and teach on the East Coast. Kerry's narrative is really a, a narrative of leaving. Carl's narrative is about coming back to America. I, I thought that, um, I thought that uh, Tom had a wonderful section on geography in his book when he said uh, 
the American concept of geography has undergone a powerful shift. Places less important than it has ever been to those who can free themselves from it, yet more important to those who aren't able to leave it. Is that one thing that perhaps distinguishes the two Americas? One group of people who are imprisoned, if you like, in geography, and then the rest of us, including us, who, who aren't? That was certainly my operating thesis moving forward, that the uh, the unwinding, to use uh, George Packer's words, has not you know, just been one of uh, income and the concomitant privileges, but also the ability to uh, live where you want to live, to have a, uh, a living that uh, is portable. And one really unfortunate uh, economic effect of the pandemic that we've seen um, is uh, the huge disparity in those who have been most affected by it. And uh, by and large, those are people who are stuck to their geographies, who cannot take their job elsewhere. I would say, I would say globalization too has exacerbated that, that issue about geography. You know, it's, and, and what I think we're seeing now in some of the nationalism and um, populist movement is, is, is a backlash to that uh, globalization. You know, if, 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 if working class people, for example, are, are, have been devalued because of globalization or ignored, um, um, then they're going to, and, and they can't leave their places, they're going to come back with what they have come back with, with votes. And we'll leave Trump out, we'll try to leave Trump out of it, but they, they come back with a, a vote that we don't, I think I'll agree with. I don't know what I'm trying to say. You know, I think one of the things that really struck me when I was driving around the country was the sense of, you know, you, you talk about people being stuck in these communities, but, you know, I don't know, you know, what it was like 50 years ago, but today, because of the internet and because of corporate chains, you know, wherever you go is the same in a way. And, you know, wherever you go, you can go to a Walmart and to a McDonald's and to, a, you know, all in any, when you go out into the country, you know, every, all these small towns are, 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 are desiccated. I mean, they're all dried up except for chains out on the highway. And, you know, people are sitting at home on their smartphones or their computers and they're seeing this wider world or TikTok, and there's this huge sort of disparity between the community that they live in, which is becoming increasingly hollowed out, and this world that comes to them either on their screens or through large corporate chains over which they have no control. And I mean, you know, I, I kept thinking how different that was from, you know, the city I live in, Washington, D.C., or New York City, or even or even and how um, you know destabilizing that must feel and alienating that must feel to people. You know, you can't go or small churches. I mean, I went to this uh, prayer breakfast in church in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, and uh, you know it was a church. There were fifty guys, uh, uh, people who had been going there for fifty years, and there were like fifteen guys left who were in their seventies and eighties, and they said we can't get anyone to join the church anymore. Everyone goes to mega churches, and the mega churches have 3,000 people, but there's no real sense of community. And I think over and over and over again, that is repeated through so much of America. Yeah, uh, Carl, I want to quote your book. You have a, 
a wonderful section on your description. Most of your, your, your book is about going to these Trump rallies, but you say, you talk about, uh, I stayed off the interstate through the rest of Kansas into Oklahoma. It was beautiful open country, but it felt dead. Town after town with lovely old structures, all empty with crumbling grain elevators and rusty, weedy railroad tracks. So much of America now is like this. Abandoned towns surrounded by lines and lines of of chain stores. Is this the America that the rest of you saw too in your work? Yes and no. There's still individual, like you go to Denison, Iowa, where I spent a year living. And uh, yes, there's the chains on the edge of town, but there's also the, on the main street, the Broadway, there's there's the little shops that people love to patronize. So Denison, isn't that a college town? No, that's Ohio, you're thinking. This is Denison, Iowa. It's a new town, about 80 miles from the Nebraska border. And um, 8,000 residents, 3,000 Latinos. That's that's the reason I went there uh, initially was this incredible cultural uh, 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 diversity. But um, so, yeah, there's the chains out there, but there's still the local businesses. And there's there, there people are trying to cling to community. Uh, I saw that when I lived there. Uh, people want community. And I think... Um, um, yeah, I just, I just, we got to, that's something that has to be worked on, I think, in terms of uh, how we face the 2020s, which is, I really, I like to have my, my work forward looking. How do we get beyond this? And I, I guess my title is is not as uh, cheerful as, as Tom's book might be, but uh, uh, within that, there's hope in that um, uh, I do think there's enough people in America who, who want to have a good country. Uh, yes, fascism has been on the rise. But I still like to believe it's 30 or 40 percent of America. It's not 60 percent of America. Tom, you have, again, a very good section in your book on what you call the the new zones of exclusion have shut shut out Americans from their own country. Winner cities have become havens of inequality and nearly impossible to navigate for those drawing old school paychecks from retail jobs or public schools. You all, all have themes about that in your book. Is there two Americas, Tom, or, or is the, 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 the old America, is it just dead, as, as, as Carl is suggesting? No, there's, there are absolutely two Americas. And when um, I wrote about zones of exclusion, what I thought of, strangely enough, was the, uh, the lanyards that uh, go around your neck, you know, that hold your key card to get into the office building, or you also get them when you go to conferences. You know, it sort of signifies, you know, I belong here. And, you know, it's, uh, it, it creates outsiders uh, who are... Um, divorced from that kind of uh, economy. And I think Dale said something really important there about uh, a search for community. And he's echoing um, the the great uh, American historian, uh, the librarian of Congress, as a matter of fact, Daniel Borston, who wrote about the, uh, you know, the founding of the uh, European settlement, that is, uh, of this continent Um, in the 17th century. He wrote, America began as a search for community. And I think we're still on that journey. Uh, uh, Kerry, um, you, uh, of all the books, you focus on a single town. Were there two towns in Milltown uh, or is it just one town? And, 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 and what is your feeling about these zones of exclusion? Are the small towns of America dying? Um, there are, there's only one, there's, there's not two towns within the one town. Um, and. Yes, small town America is dying in some ways. I mean, the manufacturing towns, because manufacturing is never going to come back the way it was 
we don't have, we have the EPA, we have the FDA, we have, we have OSHA, we have rules and regulations that make manufacturing sort of a non-colonial operation. So it's never going to be that way uh, as it was once so successful. And, and I, I would argue that there, there is a lot of community in this town and that's what held me there. And that's why people stay there. Um, you know, I, I wasn't, I wouldn't say I was an outsider either to that community. My, my mother still lives there, um, lots of relatives, all my family's buried there. And I know, and everybody I interviewed in the book, I grew up with. So I, I made sure that I, I could have some kind of connection with, with the people in this town in order to write about them. Because I think that's been what's missing a little bit in some books um, is love and empathy for people on a very personal level. Um, and there is community. It's just that they're suffering under the fist of, you know, structural imbalance and 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 everything else, globalization, non-manufacturing, you name it, a million things. Dale, one of the things that struck me about your book um, was, and this is true of all your books, is a, as a focus on image, on photography. You juxtapose two astonishing photos. You've got this 1936 photo of the American River Camp north of downtown Sacramento. It's terrible poverty in 1936, an iconic photo. You go back to the identical place and you find poverty mm -hmm. updated, but no less offensive and appalling. Has anything changed? Uh, I mean, you're all historical thinkers one way or the other. You can't avoid thinking historically in, in your work. Uh, are you suggesting, Dale, that really the 1920 or the 2020s are a repeat, as you say, of, of the 1930s? Well, in, in the sense that um, we face a threat of authoritarianism, fascism. You know, people will argue that uh, America will never become fascist. It's neo-fascism. Neo-fascism is fascism. And there's an attraction when people are angry and upset. They want uh, uh, to blame people to escape. It's easy to scapegoat. And so uh, I, but I like to look at the hopeful angle and where the New Deal at least helps some Americans and the post-war economy be be uh, be successful. And I'm hoping that out of the 20s, we we have a, a crucible of a new kind of a New Deal uh, politically. If the answer comes in that direction, but I think. Uh, critical, uh, John Russo, a labor studies professor that I often quote, I've known him for years, he's, he calls this the contested terrain we're in, this next four years, eight years, where we're going to decide our, which way we're going to go as a country. And I'm hoping it ends up in the, the positive terrain, not like Philip Roth um, imagined with his uh, novel uh, 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 Plot Against America with, um, with uh, Lindbergh becoming president. It could have happened in the 30s. And, and we could have gone either way then. It wasn't a foreordained outcome that we were going to end up in a good place after the Great Depression. And it isn't now either. In some ways, it's scarier now. But I think the same choices are being faced. I'd love to come to Carl on this because Carl really had literally a front seat on what some people see as fascism, the reappearance of fascism in America. Let me quote Carl, uh, your, one of your wonderful uh, sections on, on Trump's rallies. You say, Trump's rallies played off so many iconic pieces of American culture, from their location in sports arenas to their encouragement of tailgating. But in his appeal to fundamentalist evangelicals, he was not just using policy, but aesthetics and style regarding fundamental ideas of American identity and American cultural and religious experience. 
I, again, I don't want to put words into your mouth, Carl, but are you suggesting that Trump and Trumpism is somehow ingrained in American culture? Well, I'm saying that Trump appropriated consciously or unconsciously. I mean, I think there are people in his um, employ who understood some of these things that he kind of appropriated this great cultural icon, which is, you know, the the, the fire and brimstone preacher, a revivalist rap um, uh, in camp meetings and, you know, the, the great awakenings that have played so profound a, a role in American culture and that, you know, uh, this guy, a fine fire and brimstone preacher who gets up and draws this very sharp delineation between saint and sinner and between, you know, that the, the devil's trying to, and that sin is trying to grasp you and that, you know, you have to fight that. And in this brightly lit arena in which people are um, dying, you know, literally, and well, not literally, but metaphorically passing out and then being born again. I and mean, people literally are carried out of Trump rallies sometimes. And so I think there's a lot of, you know, it, it all dates back to a, I mean, what got me really starting to think about it was it, it, my second rally in Dallas, sitting next to a woman who, and I said to her, you know, why are these lights? It, it, I said, it's surprising to me that the lights are so bright, that they're hyper bright. There's no spotlight on the president. Everything's lit. And she said, well, it's because it's like church. And that got me thinking and going down this whole rabbit hole of, you know, the powerful uh, way uh, um, religion, powerful role religion plays in all of this. But there's one more thing I want to say, which is that going back to what Carrie said, talking about, you know, which we haven't talked enough about, I don't think, and which um, we in America don't talk enough about. And that's just, you know, the powerful economic changes, the loss of manufacturing jobs. And, you know, all of these people, I mean, over and over again, the, the people that I spent time with, the Trump rallies, you know, were, were, you know, the appeal of Donald Trump was that he was coming up and saying, I'm going to make you a winner again. I'm going to take you back to this place in which manufacturing was king, in which a man, and I saw this over and over again, you know, men told me these stories about how, you know, they worked and they didn't mind working. They loved to work and their, their backs were, they worked with their backs and their hands. And when times got tough, they worked an extra job where they, you know, hauled firewood or they did something extra, but it was all based on sort of manliness, traditional ideas of manliness and blue collar work. And, you know, from miners to steel mills, you know, that old heavy industry that was dangerous and horrible. I mean, it, it, you know, it killed people, but it also gave men a powerful sense of dignity as well as economic, some economic um, surety. And that so much of that is gone. And we don't talk about what's going to happen with those people, and, you know, and how we're going to address those, those sense of identities that are gone. Let's spend the rest uh, oh. a, a couple of minutes to, to end this talking about this or talking about what we want to see happen in, in 2021 and onwards. Um, Tom, uh, you have, uh, again, with your focus on geography, in your, I'm quoting you here in, in your book, um, The National Highway, more than a flag, a tribe, an ethnicity, a legal agreement, a cluster of art or a production of culture, America is a civilization of awareness. Our shared geography between the oceans is the lowest common denominator within this clashing territory of strangers. 
Tom, is, is the solution then to reestablish geography? Is that where we should begin? I can tell you, uh, Andrew, that uh, this last four years has been incredibly disillusioning for me. You know, I grew up with certain notions of uh, America as a kind and decent place, and those uh, foundations of uh, my belief have been shaken, uh, like they'd never have been shaken before. But I come down to the fact that uh, not only was the country founded on a, an idea, an imperfect idea, uh, imperfectly executed, but still a good idea, but also uh, as much as you know, the romanticists among us might try to deny it, you know, a certain, uh, the ground, the soil, the, uh, the land. And, you know, we are roommates with uh, those who are extremely different from us. And I think as Americans, we've had uh, an enormously difficult time uh, with this idea. You know, perhaps it's the roominess of the place uh, that's, uh, that, that's given us both the blessing and the curse. How would we do that, Tom? How would we begin to rebuild America around the soil, around the land? Part of me wants to uh, think of various wonky um, uh, approaches such as uh, redevelopment zones. You know, this was uh, taken in a very bad direction in the 1960s. You know, but creative ways of thinking of reappropriating these places. Carrie will tell you about the enormously creative work that uh, Somali Americans have done in Maine. Um, a a re-embrace of the vigor and the imagination of the immigrant. And I think that Dale probably saw this in Denison, Iowa. I certainly saw it in uh, Postville, Iowa when I spent time there. So uh, perhaps we should look outside our borders. Uh, Carrie, do you wanna say something about, uh, yeah, Tom set you up on that one. He did set me up and I'm going to go a little sideways, but I think part of what we need to, the, the solution is we need to uh, think about what success actually is, is you know, what, what counts as a contribution to the common good. I mean, it's interesting in this pandemic, suddenly we have this term essential workers, right? And it's sort of helping us sort out and who are they? They're not like Wall Street guys. It's like teachers and doctors and, and people that work at the grocery store and garbage men. And you know, and that goes to the manufacturing sector too. Is like, we've we've Democrats have long sort of devalued that kind of thing. They they valued education, higher education, as a place you want to be. And in that promise is is really it's a faulty thing. It it says that if you don't go to college, you're a failure, right? So I think that America needs to like refocus and understand what value and what success means, and what's an essential, what what is what is essential to America as far as work and economy, which drives identity in all these places in America. Does that make sense? Dale, I know you're, you're nodding at this. You're, of everyone, you seem to be perhaps the most explicitly political. I know everyone's political in your, in your argument in favor of a, of a Green New Deal and of a more uh, radical democratic agenda. Is politics the fix? Can we do it through politics, Dale? Well, we, you know, it, the, we fire hose money on Wall Street. The Fed just, Wall Street has to roar. Uh, but you look at a place like Youngstown where 50,000 high paid steel jobs were lost. And they were promised retraining, it didn't come. Uh, basically, we forgot about those people. And you can't have an America, we need an America where there's a level playing field where somebody in Youngstown has just as much opportunity or, or to, to advance as somebody in Manhattan or in California. And if some of that money were put in the middle with 
maybe jobs programs, uh, uh, kind of a works progress administration kind of thing. My uncle was in the WPA and it changed his life. Um, maybe if we did a little money toward the middle of the country and not to Wall Street, uh, if that's political, uh, so be it. I don't think it's a Democrat or Republican issue. I think it's a human issue. Uh, um, Carl, you're, of, 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 of everyone on this show, you're perhaps the, the, the most of an outsider since you, you've, you've spent most of your working life describing places outside America. Is there any way you've experienced or seen outside America that could be a model for our reinvention of this country? Well, I mean, you know, I think that Americans are, I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking off the top of my head here, but, you know, when you're traveling around, like if you're in Southeast Asia and, and you know, the, the vast sums of money and the, the affluence and the development that's going on there and, and um, you know, is, is mind boggling and the levels of education and the way people push them, their children to, to, to study and, you know, so much of that is kind of lost in America. Um, and I, I, but I still think it's it's this whole, you know, there are tens of millions of people in America who are, uh, you know, inheritors of this blue collar industrial uh, ethos who have been left sort of high and dry. And that, you know, we've got to figure out a way to engage those people and, and to uh, and I don't, I'm not sure I'm not sure what that is, but and to 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 create jobs that are good jobs that aren't just you know in the service industry that are jobs that produce um, you know a sense of identity and nobility. Well, I began this this show talking about the Economist's Country of the Year for 2020, which America certainly. Uh, Malawi, by the way, was their country of the year. Uh, they also spoke very highly of Taiwan and some other uh, countries outside America. If, if America is to become the country of 2021 and the, the Biden people or someone from the Biden team is watching this, give me one thing that might brighten America up in 2021, something doable, realizable, that can actually change the worlds that you've all spent your careers describing uh who wants to start i know it's hard but i'll have you back all on in uh in in january 2022 and see whether we've actually achieved any of this stuff who wants housing housing because um uh there's an eviction crisis coming the eviction lab and a few other uh, uh nonprofits that study this predicts 30 to 40 million people face eviction of course they're not all become homeless, but even if a tiny fraction of them becomes homeless, it's a crisis of, uh, it makes the, the Dust Bowl migration look like nothing in the Great Depression. So uh, anything that can help housing, and and that, uh, not public housing, there's there's there's, uh, there's too many, it's too difficult, I could spend an hour on this, what should be done with housing. But I think that should be Biden's number one issue as far as this topic is concerned. Housing, who, uh, who wants to go next? Well I would say, uh, two things that are related. The climate emergency is really important, as well as um, environmental disasters, small and large, uh, large uh, things that we see in the news, but also small, like that is happening in Mexico, Maine. And I think that the EPA needs to come back together and actually um, govern or help help regulate industries that are, are, are problematic to these issues. EPA, housing, Tom, Carl? Go ahead. 
you want? I'll, I'll echo what Dale said about housing. I think housing first for the hardcore homeless, that is to say fully subsidized, difficult pill to swallow, but it's the only thing that works. And I'll also say uh, some humane sound tax policy and a final reputation of this ludicrous idea that uh, uh, tax cuts for the rich do anything uh, for anyone below uh, uh, $500,000 a year. It just doesn't work. And Carl? Well, I just I think this sort of going off of what Kerry said, I mean, the, the, I think the Democrats have to do a lot better job of drawing the parallel between, you know, people talk about the Green New Deal and then the Republicans ridicule it and say and talk about that as if it's a economic, um, uh, you know, a, a jobs killer. And, and then you're getting and then what happens is, you know, you're in a Trump rally and Trump will go on and on and on about the windmills, uh, uh, you know, the bird, they're, they're killing birds and the husband who turns on the TV and can't watch his football game because the, there's no wind and, you know, they can't wash their clothes, get their clothes clean because the dish, the washing machine is too efficient and, and all those things. And he's ridiculing this, this uh, you know, essentially, you know, dealing with climate change and environmental issues. And when it should be the other way around. I mean, you know, China is building high-speed trains, you know, thousands and thousands of miles and, you know, creating windmills and, you know, diving into alternative energy sources. And those are technologies of the future that who, who controls them are gonna control, you know, the, the, the energy and economies of the future. And that's where the jobs uh, are going to lie. And that's where, you know, a, a successful country is gonna, is gonna be. And the, the, the Democrats don't seem to really be able to articulate that. So we have jobs, we have, ho uh, we have um, home ownership or, or, or addressing uh, un um, uh, homelessness. Uh, we have the environment. We have lots of challenges for 2021. I wanna thank all four of you not only for coming on the show, but for your excellent books, brilliant books, which each in their own way does a magnificent job um, identifying and, and, and explaining uh, the, the current American predicament, perhaps even tragedy. I want to wish you all a very happy and healthy 2021. And I will look forward to having you all on the show in, this, in January 2022 to see if anything in America has changed. Thank you all so much. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.